listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Secretive, contemplative, visceral. The music of Anthony D'Onofrio reflects a deep interest in delicate and fragile treatments of time and gesture that are often interrupted or broken. His work investigates the compositional intersection of music and experimental literature, specifically in the realm of nonlinearity and structural distortion. His music has been featured nationally and internationally by many wonderful, generous, and exceptionally talented people. Anthony teaches composition, theory, 20th century music history, and directs the New Music Ensemble at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. He is also the director of the UNK New Music Series and Festival, which brings specialists in contemporary music to central Nebraska to present recitals, masterclasses, and lectures. In his spare time, he enjoys book collecting, studying occultism, and cooking. Well, let's uh, let's start with your uh, let's start with your piece two for two. Flute All right, and we're clarinet. Gonna, we're gonna go there. Yeah, and uh, first, uh, I I did a little bit of reading. Uh, I mean, you sent the score. Thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. So let's first explain the series from which this works come. This work comes, and why it has the title that it does. All right. So my my dissertation was a a double percussion concerto um, for obviously two percussionists and and wind ensemble and. This was <clears throat> this was 2010 2011, and it was the the last of me. I, I used to write in this very um, kind of Christopher Rouse style uh-huh. of just you know bash you over the head yeah. with <laughs> with as much sound as I could, um, and and I also used to write in a very in a very programmatic way, mm-hmm. um, but s- slowly over time. Uh, those ideas, I, I, I just kind of fell, fell out of, uh, they fell out of favor with me. I just, mm-hmm. I just really didn't want to go that route. And around 2009, I was very much trying to, to get rid of that. But my, my advisor was not having it. <laughs> <laughs> he was not having it. He was like, like, no, you're not changing styles midstream. I, and, you know, I, I wanted to do a, a very drastic change to the dissertation he's like no no we're, we're gonna finish this and um and you can hear it in that dissertation piece when you get to the last say five minutes you can hear that you know i, I don't want to be here so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna <laughs> i i made it almost grotesque and <laughs> yeah just <laughs> going was, through pretty, the motions yeah um and so the piece right after that uh was a, a a little piece for flute, violin, um, cello, and piano, and I was trying to come up with a, a title, and I hate titling things. Mm-hmm. It's it's I, I really don't like it, and I I wanted to separate from all of those associations that I had before, so I decided, well, I'll just I'll just do the Roman numeral for as many players as are as there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, I found out about the cage number pieces. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So I, I felt well, okay. I, I can I can still do something like that. I I don't feel like I'm totally stealing. And those but, and those cage number pieces for the listeners that might have, you know, might just know the the more famous pieces by Cage. Uh, those came like what those those were all in the I don't know remember when they started, but the bulk of them came in the eighties. Yeah, and uh, he was basically the number was just the number of players, and then it had a like a superscript mm-hmm. for um, if he had written you know several duets, then it would be like two to the power of four, meaning it's like yeah. the fourth duet he's written or something like that. Yeah, I had the opportunity to play uh, four four. Uh-huh. And yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. For four percussionists, and that's a fun piece to play. Yeah. So. I really got into that idea of oh this is this is completely you know different than what I had been doing, so I found that whenever I wanted to either extend a uh, a formal idea or with 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 this piece more of a uh, more of a, a, a timbral idea. I kind of went to the Roman numeral pieces mm-hmm. to use to use that as I guess uh, a lab for experimentation, and and um, I didn't. I'm not writing them in order. Uh, you know, four came, four was the first one, and then I wrote eleven, which was a bit of a mess, and then <laughs> and then <laughs> and then three, and then five, and then one, and they all kept kept getting longer. One is is ninety minutes for solo piano. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so when I hit that, I kind of said, "Okay, I, I think I'm gonna step away from the evening length um, pieces," which was sort of a lie because I wrote one more. Uh, and then when when this when the commission for this piece came up, I decided well, this will be a good opportunity to kind of go back and 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 rethink some ideas. So with 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 uh, two is very linked to. Um, a piano trio that I wrote in, well, I, I wrote the first idea for it way back in like 2013. Mm -hmm. And then I, I severely revised the thing in 2015 and piano trio was the first piece where I finally, uh, what's how to say it, where I finally was able to write a complete piece that only dealt with super delicate, super fragile, um, ideas uh, uh, sounds and gestures that just bordered on that on, on that uh, 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 kind of real sensitive sound, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a, a lot of my pieces have some kind of swell to a big to a big uh, right. uh, forte or something. Where this piano trio was the first one where I, I was able to take that away and still have a and still have a a. Uh, a piece I was satisfied with. And so a lot of pieces after the piano trio were like, okay, that that piece is now the starting point and it's thinking of ideas with how can I take the fragile or um, delicate ideas that I made in that piece and see what happens if they break or if I push them this way or push them that way. Uh, two was written very close to another piece for cello and piano where uh, 
it was the same thing where the, the, the concept was I'm taking fragile ideas, I'm taking extremely delicate ideas, and I'm going to intentionally break them and see what they what they fall into. Mm-hmm. Where two was more trying to kind of really stay on this balance of uh, of uh, well, I, I was looking through some sketches to get ready for this, and I had written uh, the idea of engaged versus not engaged silence. So meaning silence where we're just sitting there kind of resting like a cadence point or silence where we're sitting there wondering or a delicate sound where we're sitting there kind of on the edge versus, oh, that's a relaxation. So, right. Okay. So so that was, that was where I was kind of going with this, with this piece. I mean, the, the piece I heard you perform at the, um, at the Washington state, uh, new music festival. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Was uh, that was also a very quiet, you know, it was a very quiet piece. It had very quiet sounds and gestures. Where did this kind of fascination? I mean, it seems like you you had this after uh, after your dissertation, you had this massive kind of break in terms Mm -hmm. of what you were doing on uh, before and what you were doing after. So and I, yeah, I guess where did where did the kind of fast was it just like you wanted to go in a different direction and what you had been doing was very loud, so the natural reaction would be to do something that's you know kind of very quiet. Um, no, it's it's a it's a weird it's a weird series of connections. But um, my first stick with me on this one. Okay. <laughs> my first my first favorite composer. I don't really have. Uh, favorites is is a weird word now yeah. but my first the first composer that really I really got into was actually Mahler okay and one of the reasons was I am very drawn to the idea of this you know big world that he created in you know his symphonies like I'm thinking like symphony 2 symphony right. 6 mm-hmm. that kind of thing um but with Mahler, you obviously have, you know, with a Mahler symphony, you have the movements and, and they bri- and, and, and it gets broken up. And there are these moments of complete, um, uh, almost leaving the piece and then returning to it in the next movement. I had always wished for uh, music that was, you know, unbroken for that duration of time. Yeah. And then around 2009, well, uh, a, a friend of mine had mentioned... Uh, the music of Feldman, and I only knew I only knew of Feldman from because I was a percussionist. King of I Denmark. only knew of Feld King of Denmark, yeah. <laughs> which when you're a undergrad percussion major and you read the score to King of Denmark, you are extremely confused. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> especially especially if your teacher doesn't care about it. <laughs> right. Hey, hey, what's this? Oh, you don't want to read that. Yeah. Um, and in our music library, we had the scores to. I think some of the durations. So mm-hmm. the only Feldman I had been aware of uh, were those early, earlier pieces, you know, with the, the graph, the graph or, pieces, the, yeah. or the middle pieces that were still only, a, you know, six to 10 minutes long. Right. And uh, my friend told me about for Philip Gustin. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I started doing a, a, a Wikipedia search and I come across this, you know, the page and it says, it talks about the second string quartet and I go six hours of one movement. And, and it was, I have to know about this. So 
it is very it is very uh clear in a lot of my pieces from about 2011 to around 2014 2015 that Feldman was a huge influence right and his words the way he spoke about silence and the way he spoke about quiet uh for me gave me the that ability to create something of a large scale that didn't have to be broken that could continue um nowadays i i don't i don't hear as much as that influence anymore but i do know that the music i'm more drawn to is the music that i can kind of uh a, a slowly uh, I guess I- I immerse in where mm-hmm. yeah. where things that are more things that are more um, uh, aggressive or things that are, are louder or faster. I kind of have to. I kind of get the shock, and then I, I I need a few minutes to kind of you know get over that, and then get into it, and then who knows if it's if it's a short piece, then by the time you it's might over, not I'm, get I'm, back into it. <laughs> right, exactly. So I th- I, th- I think the idea to to stick with the with the with the quiet delicate stuff um comes from that but then there's a second connection and that's the connection to uh uh literature where where I, I i just i just feel like if i want to create something that's a little bit more non i hate saying non-linear now because it says what it's not but something something a little bit more um uh, flexible with time or temporal you know uh, uh, flexibility or distortion or something that isn't necessarily goal oriented or terribly clear with its formal structure mm-hmm. i feel more comfortable with slower or quieter or more delicate music rather than something that is a, a, a little bit more um consistently loud or bombastic or or, or something like that yeah. obviously there's loud parts of my music but as as we'll hear with other pieces, but but not 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 uh, the, the entire time. Yeah, and I think uh, particularly, you know, if you kind of with fast music and and you know particularly fast, you know, not repetitive but like kind of motor rhythms or you know stuff like that. There's only so much of that you can do before it ends up being kind of goalless in a way so keeping keeping the texture kind of like you say flexible or there there are a lot of different possibilities instead of you know well if you start this it's got to go somewhere otherwise it's gonna it's gonna lose its novelty it's gonna lose its steam really quick so yeah that's interesting um and and also if i can't if i may yeah the, in in this piece, I work with. I there are sections where I, I give a strict tempo, like quarter note equals this, and there's an expectation that the instruments will line up on the on the level of every beat, and then there are moments where uh, it's it's you know more free, and it's 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 thinking of a of a macro idea, and as long as you start here, and as long as you both get to this part around the same time it's it's a successful it's a successful execution of the music that to me is 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 easier to do <clears throat> is more is more uh 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 
I'm, I'm more capable of doing that when I have some kind of of uh, slower tempo or and, right. and and that kind of thing. Where if it's loud or if it's fast, then it, it you can get it gets a little more messy. Yeah, there are people who who can do it, but I'm not I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting. You also brought up the idea of scale versus form. And that's mm-hmm. something that Feldman talked a lot about was mm-hmm. his pieces have scale, but don't necessarily have form in the in the way that we think about it. And um, now that you brought that up, I'm, I'm thinking back to like listening to this piece in particular and, you know, writing notes for it. And it makes a whole lot more sense to me now that I'm thinking about it in terms of scale as opposed to form. Um, yeah. One other thing you, in this piece, you're, you're using uh, multiphonics for flute mm-hmm. and clarinet. And mm-hmm. whenever people, you know, extensively kind of use multiphonics, I'm always kind of curious about their workflow because, you know, working with those types of sounds, they can't really be represented, you know, either A, on the piano or B, on, you know, some kind of notation software. So I'm just kind of like wondering, you know, with these sounds that are pitched, but you're not going to have a good representation of them while you're putting the piece together, how do you, how do you go about that, that process of working with those sounds? With this particular piece, I I stuck to the resources that I had. So so uh, Helen Bledsoe's YouTube videos, where she explains how to create the particular um, sounds on the flute, uh-huh. and uh, and Hella Roche's uh, website, right? Yeah, where she's got the little rec- recordings of it. Yeah. So there would be times when I would be. Uh, this this was tedious, but I'd have one one video queued up here yeah. and that thing there. I'm like, okay, and I'd be <laughs> clicking very fast and going, all right, I think I got an idea. Okay. And, and it it took a lot of it took a lot of just remembering what that particular sample sounded like, and and just really trying to hear it hear it in my head. So I kind of went with the idea of I know that this can be done. So I have some kind of audio proof that this can be done. Right. So I'm only going to work. I'm only going to work with those things that I that I um, know. I had also worked. Or there was an earlier piece before this for just clarinet and piano, where I did. I used similar uh, similar sounds for the clarinet, and I remember the problems that we had. <laughs> so there was a there was a lot of now remember that Scott had an issue with this so try not to write you know that kind of thing yeah um, and the work the working method for that piece was kind of what, what my usual method is in that there's a, a lot of paper involved and I don't I I do not I am not someone who would just open up a Sibelius file and begin yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, there's, there, I, I almost use it, I almost have to be overwhelmed by the amount of notes that I've taken or the amount of sketches that I've made. It's like, okay, I, I have to get to the computer now or else I'm just going to have a, I'm just going to have a pile of stuff. With this piece though, it was much more just a collection of like collecting the particular sounds that I knew I wanted to work with. So there was, there was a lot of. What does a jet whistle sound like before you make it the whistle sound? Right. What 
what does what does this bite down on the reed and and make all the little uh, uh, fluttery sounds on the clarinet? What does that sound like? And just listening to it over and over again, trying to have an 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 aural memory, mm-hmm. and then sitting down. And when I came to sit down to to write the piece, it was actually much more my my concerns were time and texture and how much how mu- how long this thing is going to go versus this thing is going to go uh so once i got to pencil in hand and paper in front of me the sounds were al- i'm not going to say secondary but very much i i was i was so familiar with them that i just worked with them that way so you kind of created a a library of resources first pretty much and then you know basically said this is these are my sounds this is what i have to work with now what can i do with them okay yeah yeah i i've totally done that whole like all right i gotta get this clip cued to right here and Mm -hmm. now i play this on the piano (coughs) and i stretch way over here to press play <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> yeah it's how it's always a uh a challenge but you know it's it, they're they're cool you know you want to you want to work yeah. with them so it's yeah. like it as opposed to you know just writing a piece that's just notes and rhythm where you can represent it you know of course, of course, the sounds are going to be awful, but you can represent it on Sibelius faithfully or on the piano or something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm always curious uh, what what people what lengths people go to to try and incorporate these sounds when you have to you, as a composer, you kind of have to go above and beyond um, your your standard method, of, at least, you know, my standard method of working. So, um, well, let's, uh, let's listen to this piece. Great. Um, and who are the performers that we're going to hear on this recording? The performers are, uh, John McMurtry on flute and Eric Ginsberg on clarinet. And this is from the, this is the premiere of the piece. Uh, it was commissioned by the Western Illinois university, uh, new music festival. So, and you'll probably need headphones for this one. There's a lot of quiet, a lot of quiet in this. <laughs> All right. So this is two for flute and clarinet.
Well, let's talk about Canto 3 for mm-hmm. self-accompanying soprano. So yes. as I listened to this and looked at it, this is not a nothing piano part. I mean, it isn't the hardest thing in the world, but it explores a lot of different rhythmic combinations and using the, uses the entire range of the piano. So mm-hmm. how do you compose this knowing that there are a lot of sopranos that while their voices are incredible, uh, they wouldn't be able to hang with the piano part? I mean, what kind of considerations did you did you have to make that you wouldn't necessarily think about when the two parts would be performed by separate people? Well, now that you say it that way, <laughs> I mean, I wrote the piece for for uh, 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 Liz Purse. Um, I thought that was Liz. Okay, mm-hmm. I listened to the recording. I was like, "This really sounds like Liz." <laughs> oh yeah, Liz had, I think, just posted something on Facebook one time of basically there are so many pieces out there that ask an instrumentalist to sing why why not the other way around right and so a few a couple of us you know messaged her and 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 got talking and so i i wrote it i i did not consider the idea that someone else would be doing it on their own uh-huh. and i basically took the took the the um the approach that this this could be performed by two people if they so wanted i would be okay with it mm-hmm. um uh and i'm pretty sure liz would be okay with it too uh that was my, you know my approach when, when when i walked in and and so i i just i just kind of went um with, with writing it and so the considerations about about you know that knowing that this was only going to be played by one person was more for the moments where I wanted, um, you know, simultaneous attack. Right. But it's not in a very metrical, like, yeah, three, four, downbeat kind <laughs> of idea. So my thinking was, well, there's, it would be, it would be easier if one person could just simply begin singing and play the piano at the same time because it's one brain. And so that was that was my consideration of this is how it really is self-accompanied because there's obviously I don't want to say there's no way that two people could line things up but it would be much harder for two to line it up than than one person right and there yeah. you have some gestures in there I'm thinking specifically where the soprano will hold out a note and then she will cut herself off with a piano note I think those are actually the more difficult things to do because I think when you do that with two people there's always the soprano is always kind of waiting and then they react instead of anticipate you know, mm-hmm. so it, it's it's that in particular. I mean, I've had that. I've had the same thing happen when it's uh, soprano and uh, electronics. You know, they're holding it out, and the electronics are supposed to cut them off, but it never quite works that way, where yeah. they can you know line up exactly. You know, let the electronics completely 
cut them off. They always kind of hang over a little bit. And in a way, in my later pieces, because that was such a such an important part for for some you know big moments in my later pieces that did something like that. I made a cueing system that was controlled by the soprano so that she could uh, she could just be like, okay, I'm gonna sing and I'm done, you know and mm-hmm. so it's it's a very similar thing and I think it's really smart but uh, but yeah, it's uh, those kind of gestures I think would be really difficult with two people and the other the other part of it, which we probably won't we're not gonna hear for this because I only I only gave you an excerpt of it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very end of the piece, when she returns to the Gregorian chant uh, way of singing, and that's the way it's notated, I don't give her a rhythm, but at the very end, she's she's in unison, unison pitch with the piano. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's, with, with no rhythm, but in a chant style, right. that would be difficult for the pianist to be following them and if they tried to do a head cue for every note it, i think that would look silly and also i think that would come across in performance so my thinking was was if there's one brain this is going to be able to be uh done much more uh in in a much more satisfactory way than if there were two people that's not to say that two people could not do this piece right those are my those were my self accompanied th- thoughts Yes, the piano part is hard. Yes, I got slightly yelled at, but it was it was <laughs> it was more. So she she premiered the piece at the 2017 Omaha Under the Radar uh-huh. in a in an abandoned car wash, but that's for another day. Uh, that was the venue. All right, don't ask. All right, that was the venue. And I had written the piece, I think, a year before. So mm-hmm. I, I had been a year removed from the piece, and I had forgotten about some things. And the way she said it was, this piece really made me practice piano. And I go, you're being really kind. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard part, especially the, um, the, the recording that we'll hear was when she performed it on the, on the UNK New Music Series. And... Uh, I, I I really got to notice like like the you can tell it's it's the part where she has to where she's sitting and playing and then got to go inside the piano and pluck this or mute that and hit the key and there's there's some choreography that that uh, that has to happen sure but I also I think there were other moments when the piano part is a little bit more difficult you you kind of let her sit on a note. You know, there are definitely moments like that where you you were thinking like, okay, well, she's going to be focused on her hands right now, so mm-hmm. let's uh, l- let's make the vocal part a little bit, uh, you know, easier, I guess. You know, um, yeah. You were you were talking about like the uh, the Gregorian chant section. So why don't mm-hmm. you tell us um, about the text? Of this piece, I mean, what is the text? What does the text mean, and why did this particular text speak to you for this piece? Well, I've always been—I shouldn't say always. Um, this piece was the first time since. So this was written in 2016. This was the first piece since 2011. 
that I had written for voice while using text. Mm-hmm. Everything else had been, um, you know, just just v- vowels or speaking. Uh, I, I have a piece that I wrote for Quince, and the only actual text that they say they're whispering, you know, Voltaire quotes or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have a I have an issue with text, and that is that issue is that. Unless it was a collaborative effort between poet and composer, some poet thought really hard and for a long time about their word choice, about what rhymes, about the the sound of this word versus that word, about the meter of it, and I've always felt wrong setting a poem because who am I? To just, you know, walk in there and start messing with all the decisions that you made. Mm-hmm. You, know what you know what I'm trying to say? Like, Yeah, like, I think so. Um, and and so- I, I think I especially have that feeling with uh, poets that are dead, you know, that they that I can't contact in any way, that they have no say in the matter, um, mm-hmm. which... Um, the very first set of songs I ever wrote, I used a dead poet, and um, uh, and then ever since then, I've I've used uh, well, I've I should say I haven't used, I've collaborated with a living poet, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's always great because you can you know I can go and talk to her and ask her about what does this mean, how do you, and the the one thing I always to to your point, like these words were chosen. They were uh, to be. They were thought about in a certain way, you know, of of delivery. I always have her uh, record herself speaking the poem, so I can hear exactly like what is she, what does she think, you know, what is her method of saying these words. Um, but I th- I think there I think there's another thing that because I I had one moment <clears throat> in a piece that I was working on. With with the poet that I uh, keep working with, uh, her name is Alex Shaw, and um, there was a part where I was like, I you know this would really be better if I didn't have this word, like it would be musically much more satisfying and it would flow better and all this stuff, and I like killed myself trying to you know be absolutely faithful to the poem and finally I went to Alex and I was just like Alex what do you think I mean can I just can I just get rid of this one word and she's like Rob you're not killing the poem the poem exists like you're not gonna hurt it this is just another expression of that so that kind of gave me a little bit more license or freedom I, working with her words, of course, you know, right. and I haven't worked with anyone else's, so I'm not going to have that problem. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I get what you mean, but I also think that, and it might be just that she's really cool, and that's why I like working with her so much. But I think that a lot of poets, I can't say that. I, I, I know. I'm sure there are poets who'd be like, no, 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 no. You can't, you have to remain completely faithful to it. Yeah. And, so, huh. and, and so it's something that's always, something that's, that's always, you know, there in the back of my mind. And I always try to make, 
the, okay, so well, what would be the equivalent of someone doing that to my work? Mm. So if, if I wrote, if I thought about pitches and I thought about rhythms and I thought about dynamics and articulations for a long time and made something, and then I don't know how they would do it, but somebody else would take the that same order of, you know, notes, but completely change the rhythm or completely, you know, Maybe like do take, ba- take your score and make a visual art piece out of it or something. Yeah, yeah. Or, or something. And I, I so I, I at least had those, those that considerations. However, when talking with Liz, there was very much a I want text. I would like to sing words. Mm-hmm. So I chose. So I decided. So be, all right. Well, let's go big. If we're gonna if we're gonna go that way, <laughs> let's go over the top. And so I chose the. Uh, the Italian, uh, not the English translation, so I, cho- I chose to set it in Italian, but it's the inscription above the gate of hell from Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. Um, I figured, ah, well, if I'm going to choose text, let's choose something that no matter what I do to it, it's there's going to be <laughs> it, it'll still it'll still stand probably just Dante's right. not worried. So and then, but you can hear. Uh, I think you can hear in the in the piece my hesitation and 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 what I what I started doing was um, I decided to use the text not necessarily this is going to sound kind of weird because it's still text and it's still communicating a message so this isn't a complete I, this isn't a complete success but I decided say okay I'm going to use the text as the source. That's going to create. That's going uh, from the source. Sounds will emerge. So, a lot of times I'm eliminating uh, consonants, or I'm asking her to act like you sing this entire word, but only pronounce these vowels or these consonants, and so you create ghosts of the word or or fragments of the of the word. And as the as the piece goes on, and what we're going to listen to is the first uh, stanza. It the, the text gradually emerges, and that was kind of me really being hesitant to <laughs> you know, set somebody's word. You know, I was I was nervous, um, and uh, kind of related to what we talked about with the uh, the pre with with the other piece. Um, I found. There's one, I can only find one recording. Somebody has a recording of them speak, uh, saying the entire uh, Inferno in Italian, and everything else is in English. Right. Um, so I tried, I was listening to that, to that recording over and over again, getting the rhythm of that word. Like, okay, if I were to just have looked at that word, I would have thought it was three syllables and... It sounded like this, but really sounds like there's a little bit of a lift on the end of the thing here. So okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be as faithful to that as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of study of that of that uh, recording of it, and and that helped that helped a lot. Um, in hindsight, well, actually not in hindsight. In in Liz's reaction was, I understand your idea. Don't don't notate it this way. Just put the IPA. Um, and I thought about just putting the IPA, but I, I wanted to show the performer where, like, which word these sounds are coming from. She goes, "That's great, but I can just I can just read the text. Just put the IPA, and it's much easier." Like, okay, so <laughs> I've stopped I've stopped doing that. Um, and then at and then when you get to the end with the uh, uh, at the end of this stanza, she's 
no longer singing fragments of the words. Finally, the the full the, the full text is being right. is being shown, and that that was a nice that was a nice uh, formal break um, for for me um, in in creating the piece. This, this 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 also forced me to think much more left to right. I really couldn't think in my usual kind of circular or non yeah. non formal way. That this this piece ha- it, it had to right just yeah. just because of the nature of it. So. Well, let's. Li- um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to write this one. So. Cool. Let's listen to it. So uh, we're gonna hear Liz Pierce playing yes. both piano and singing, and yes. this is Canto Three.
so let's go on to the last piece and mm-hmm. how how should i say this title the the However blank of blank the blank of blank yeah that's usually what people do okay so i want to read the program note because it's short which program and then note i want you I... to explain it which program note did i send you <laughs> go ahead read it. <laughs> the program note for this piece and this is a piece for vibraphone and piano the note is, I have made it a habit to strike the low keys of the piano in my office whenever I leave, being sure to listen to the resultant tones that hang in the air. Yep. So why is this a habit? <laughs> okay, so at my first job out of out of my doctorate, I was an adjunct at uh, Kent Kent State in Ohio, where mm-hmm. I did I did my undergrad. And the offices there are pretty small. And if you were standing at my desk and went to leave, your your right hand would naturally bump into the low end of the piano. Okay. So it like like the the edge of the piano was right was to hugging the the doorway. Yeah. So a lot of times I would just leave and just you know just <laughs> hit the low bop, end. Bop, 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 bop. Yeah. And. It just kind of became a habit. And after a while, I put the idea in my head going, you really should make a piece just about that. Mm. And and so you know, I, I stored that idea away. And uh, I had no business writing this piece. Uh, 2016 was a, like one of those years where I just took on way too much work. Right. There were way too many commissions. There were way too many you know, things. But somehow, I don't know why, I just got the, like, I got to write this thing right now. Mm-hmm. And so this was a, a pretty short turnaround to write this thing because I wasn't writing it for anybody. I had no deadline. I just kind of had to get the thing out. Yeah. And so I, I sat down one day and, and started working with those sounds of, you know, low piano, fast, no pedal, What's hap- what happens. And while I got some some pretty cool ideas, they weren't enough to generate for a whole piece. And so I, I thought some more and I thought some more. And I, uh, I'm i a big fan. A lot of percussionists know of this composer. I don't know if non-percussionists, I don't, I don't know if, if as many non-percussionists know, but I'm a big fan of Stuart Saunders Smith's music. Yep, yep. Yeah. And a lot of his music has these, you know, multiple things just just freely going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I got the idea of, well, what if I put a very slow kind of calm vibraphone solo that was interrupted and accompanied by this um this this piano stuff. And uh that's kind of how the that's kind of how the piece started. Uh, the vibraphone for me is an instrument that I, I use a lot when I'm writing. A lot of times, pieces will start off within that three octave vibraphone range and then mm-hmm. and then extend out. Um, it's a really I love the instrument because of its flaws. Like we <laughs> like we almost like I I really think we want the vibraphone to sound. Like we think the vibraphone sounds completely different than it, than it actually does. Like I yeah. all, still I, I still think yeah those high those high notes are going to come out <laughs> always beautiful and <laughs> and clear and you know because you were a percussionist if you yeah. if you miss 
by one little bit, your 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 mallet goes over the node and it sounds dead. Yeah. So yeah, totally. So, so I I appreciate the 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 uh, back to those words uh, the fragile delicate. I I appreciate the the mm, sensitivity of that instrument, and and so and so the once I decided okay that's what I'm going to do, it was actually a pretty pretty easy process. Basically, the the piano will send out its its you know disturbance into the air and you know it does i don't know whatever 10 pitches within a, a second mm-hmm. those that little 10 pitch collection turns into this long vibraphone thing and then another one and then the vibraphone continues and and um for the theorists in the room, if you were if you were looking at the piano thing, you you could see it just map onto the vibraphone, but in a much much longer longer way. So it uh, it really wasn't that that hard of a an idea to do. Some sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes I really wanted to write this vibraphone thing, and so I let the piano react to whatever it said. Mm-hmm. And so those ideas started going, and then and the piece started to unfold pretty well. And then the idea of of letting the 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 strings resonate, the sympathetic vibrations, the sympathetic vibrations yeah. get get more and more present. That that came a couple of days later. Like, ooh, I could add a third element to this, mm-hmm. and and so uh, that was a lot of fun because I'm blatantly giving you two completely different elements. And there's this third element that's subtle, that's in a very subtle way, or at least it's not terribly subtle, because it takes it, it once it gets to the more resonant strings, it, it it's much more apparent. But this third element slowly creeps into the piece, and then um, and then the uh, the eventually the piano kind of takes over. The way the way it's notated is that the vibraphone is just playing along and the piano pianist is just watching and going, okay, they got to that note. I can now play this figure. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the piece, well, by the middle of the piece, it's, it becomes a, a bit of a dialogue. And by the end of the piece, the pianist just takes over this thing. And formally the idea would be, yeah, it, it ends, the piece ends, but it ends as that, as that piano part becomes, you know, the, the boss Really, right, and yeah. and so there could be this whole other ten minutes of the piece that we never hear, and I really like those kinds of things. So that that resonated pretty well. The uh, me... go ahead. I was gonna say how the title came up, but go ahead. But yeah, I was gonna ask about the title. So okay, <laughs> because is I mean, does it does it have significance, or it is it kind of a statement on the lack of extra musical statement in this piece it's a it's a this is hmm. (laughs) this is a a cynical piece it's it's kind of a cynical title and i didn't mean it to be that way but as it has matured i i titled it that way to be completely honest and everybody everybody who has written this kind of title is probably going to be mad at me and that's fine. (laughs) At the time I wrote that title, I was noticing a lot of pieces called the something of something. (laughs) 
and or 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 they or they cut the 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 and it's just something of something often with a <laughs> with an ellipse or italics or all and the thing is the two the two somethings have not a damn thing to do with the piece <laughs> okay and i just i just got I just got sick of it, and the, and the reason why I asked you, uh oh, which which program note did I send you? Oh right, was because the original program note was two parts. It was it was the the hitting of the piano keys. Yeah, but it was also um, I have noticed a trend of titles being programmatic that have nothing to do with the piece, and trends annoy me. It was this completely snarky uh, uh, program note. I cut that, but in the performance notes, I say. I say the nature of this piece could could create extra musical or programmatic, you know, uh, things. Try not to do that. Yeah. And 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 I also got, you know, when you write quiet, dissonant stuff, people often I people would come up to me after after a performance, and I I am not mad at them, but I heard I've heard the soundtrack to a horror movie reaction oh god yeah yeah which a lot of us a lot of us do and and so i i got a little bit tired of of that and so i just made a title it's like you know what make your own associations i i don't i don't care anymore (laughs) that backfired because now people are coming up people would come up to me and say oh it's i think it's the this of this one person even said you know oh it should be called the rain and the thunder it's like there's not even the word and in the title. Like, <laughs> why are you? And so it's completely backfired. Uh, no one knows what to say. Is it the blank of blank? Is it the of? And you just put silence in. Uh, one person tried to actually say, like, well, well, can I, like, put my own words in the blanks? Like, no, you cannot. So so the, it, there's a lot of the title came from just I, 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 I guess just a lot of uh, uh, um, annoyance with uh-huh. with trends that I had that I had seen so I said well you know what if, if people are gonna do that if if we can do titles with you know pretty much anything we want in them then I'm gonna put blanks in my titles right yeah and and <laughs> see and see where it goes I mean I already got things that are just you know Roman numerals so why not let's just go the next step and just say it's the blank. Go for it. You know, what, once you said that, I quickly went to my uh, works page just to scan my own titles to see if I had any of them. <laughs> I do. I wrote two of them back to back. They are The Edge of Still, mm-hmm. um, which is a quiet piece. And um, the other one, the one that I completed right after that is The Nature of Matter. But... <laughs> I mean, those those do have a pretty significant yeah yeah <laughs> connection to the piece, but that's so funny. <laughs> there, there there were just some where it was just it, like, and, and there were times where you know the, the title was beautiful, right? And, and that and, and the that, music and, was unremarkable. Music, well, yeah, it was just well, that was nice. You know, I mean, I, I uh, and and I, yeah, so I that's why I say it's a cynical piece because you have this kind of oppressive nature of the piano. And against the vibraphone, you have these ghosts of yep. you know sympathetic vibrations coming out. You, and and as I've, I realize that okay, well, let's go back to you know 
when I wrote it, I was writing it in the middle of an extremely stressful year. Well, we, 2016 was stressful for many reasons. Yeah. Um, and for, for, there was a lot of stuff going on at, at, at work. And I think just you, you, you can hear that. So if that's the extra musical part of the piece, so be it. But I, if, if I had to say that I had like a, you know, a, a statement piece or a cynical piece or even, even a political piece, if you wanted mm-hmm. to say that, you know, however you wanted to interpret the word political, I, I this is the piece that I would point to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and it, and it, and it usually gives a nice contrast to like the ultra quiet, ultra um, right. fragile stuff. So on the last page of the score, Mm-hmm. And this would occur in like the last couple, you know, last minute or so of the piece. Yeah. There are these five chords in the vibraphone. Yes. Five, uh, well, one rec- one chord repeated five times. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the only clear like repetitions in the piece. And I was kind of wondering what did, does that signify something? Oh, it, well, the, and, and, and maybe, maybe it's just, um, Maybe it's just the recording, but on and and you'll hear it as soon as the piece starts. Probably in the first minute, there are repeated dyads like C C and B flat, just repeated five times. Um, if anything gets repeated, it's often you know four or five times. But hmm. the the vibraphone gradually. The piano starts with no pedal, and the vibraphone starts with pedal down all the time. Mm-hmm. And gradually, the the vibraphone starts adding in um, dead strokes, and then you only. You know pedal. what? I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm an idiot. I'm looking I, at it now, and I and I'm seeing that. I guess yeah. maybe it was. Yeah, that is really clear when you do it the other times. Yeah, maybe it's just because it's so like isolated. And you know what? And, I know what it is. It, it's because you they're all short durations. Mm-hmm. So it's not this like connected, continuous thing that the vibraphone has been um, for mo- the majority of the rest of the piece. But it's just like these, it's sound and then silence. And then that silence kind of uh, amplifies the fact that it's getting repeated, I yeah. think. Yeah, maybe no, no, maybe that, that's why I interpreted it that way. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really accurate statement um, because... I try to, hmm, how to say this? So we'll have a musical event, and this is in any piece. Now I'm just talking generally. So you, mm-hmm. you have a musical event, and then there's silence, and then there's another musical event. You could either interpret those two musical events as connected by the silence, kind of like an antecedent consequent thing, mm-hmm. or two isolated musical events separated by silence. I love and always try to work Right over that yeah. line, and mm-hmm. I, 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 if if there was a way to just do that for an hour, I would love to learn how to do that. You know, <laughs> that would be that would be like like the best piece for me to try and do. So a lot of my pieces attempt those kinds of things, and with this one, it was well, I started off with a lot of repeated, but pedal down. It's connected. It's more just a. Uh, you know, the vibraphone can't sustain for that long, so I'm just doing that. And then by the end, it's as if the vibraphone has just become this, you know, isolated, dried up thing. And, yeah. and these, these chords are like these last 
gas before the piano just obliterates it, hmm. which is okay. kind of what happens on that last page. What, yeah. what you're referring to is they're these weak, you know, delicate chords, and then all of a sudden the piano just comes in and ruins the day. <laughs> cool. Well, so who are we going to hear on this recording? We are going to hear this is the this is uh, the the pair that premiered it. Uh, this is not the premiere performance. They recorded it in the hall the next day. And uh, the vibraphonist is Bill Salick. And the pianist is Michael Rector. And they both teach at uh, University of Wisconsin at uh, Green Bay. Cool. So this is the blank of blank.
So we've come to the last question, the one that I always ask all the composers or artists that come on the podcast, and that's uh, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, I knew you were going to ask that, so I, I I prepared. I did my homework. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not that exciting of a story, though, really. Uh, music's always, always been there. Uh, when I was... Uh, when I was three or four, my my parents got one of those you know little portable organs that you yep. find in, in in a lot of places, and I was a pretty I was a very hyper kid, and I could read early. So my both of my parents you know played trumpet, so they knew how to read music. They didn't know what the hell to do with this this kid, so they kind of sat me down, and my mom put the notes, you know, with masking tape on the keys and it became a matching game. And, but, but she would say, okay, that symbol means this and that symbol means that. And so it's kind of always been there. Uh, Middle, I'm sorry, a grade school. I kind of, I kind of didn't do much music, but middle school, I I started band. My parents thought, thought I would be a trumpet player since they both played trumpet and they didn't have to buy the instrument, but I wanted to be a drummer, uh, which made them laugh because I had absolutely no coordination, but somehow it worked. <laughs> by by eighth grade, it was pretty set that I was, you know, a musician. I, this is what I want to do. Um, obviously, I played in bands a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I listened to a lot of that, but, you know, a, a lot of that music, a lot of rock, a lot of metal. Um, but also a lot of classical all through high school. And then it just, you know, off, off I went. So it, it, it really, it was, it was always there. My parents were for the most part supportive of it the entire time. There was, there was a few times when they would say like, if you only did as, if you only put as much work into whatever geometry homework as you did your music, <laughs> you maybe wouldn't begin a D in geometry. And it's like, well, okay, <laughs> I didn't care. Uh, <laughs> Um, how I got to composition, I had always enjoyed making things, which I know is a, is a common answer, but I, I, I just really love creating and, you know, the creative process. Uh, I didn't, I didn't major in, in it until grad school. I, I got, I got talked out of it a lot. A lot of people were like, oh, you don't want to do that. Like my band director in high school, you know, he was like, oh, you don't want to go into comp, there's no jobs, you know, yeah. and, or it, and you, why would you want to do that? Those those kinds of things. But what was your undergrad major then? My undergrad major was music education, because I knew I wanted to be a professor. Hold on, wait. Let me walk that back. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but yeah. for, for me, teacher was standing in front of a classroom. I knew I did not want to be a band director. So this is so funny. We have almost the exact same story. Okay. My. Well, my thought was, my naive senior in high school thought was, well, I would really like to be a professor because I, I would I know that there's music classes, like classroom music stuff. But surely if they're teaching at the college level, they must have an education degree. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> that's what I thought as a high school senior. Nobody right. told me differently. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'll I'll major in music education. By mid-sophomore year, I realized, you know, I've made a terrible mistake, but I decided to go, I decided to see it through because I wanted to learn about teaching. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then um, I was going to do a master's in composition and I got talked out of that. I got talked into a master's in percussion performance, which was fine, which was fun. It was during that master's when I finally started to study composition, you know, with an actual teacher. Right. And I remember the lesson, that first lesson with, his, his name is Frank Wiley. He, he just uh, retired from Kent State um, last year and two years ago or whenever. And 20 minutes into that lesson, it's like, yep, this is, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to go do this. So I, I tacked on. I tacked on a master's in composition and then went on and never looked back. So yeah. <laughs> have I so described funny. have I described your life? <laughs> uh, pretty close. All right. I mean, both percussionists, uh, both didn't want to be band directors, oh, no. but yet got music education degrees anyway. Uh, definitely talked out of uh, a composition. Well, I can, you know what? I was I was composing, but I wasn't really all that serious until about the end of freshman or the beginning of sophomore year in, in undergrad. So it's not like they talked me out of a, a degree, but I will say that when I was, you know, thinking about a master's degree, there was only one person that was talking me into it. And that and of all people, uh, it was my wife's mother. Hmm. Like usually the mother-in-law is like, no, go get a job, you know, support right. my daughter. <laughs> but she was like, no, you have to do this uh, much at that time, much to my wife's like dismay. Cause my wife was like, no, I want to like get jobs and get a house and start to have babies. And, and like tacking six more years of school onto that was not the plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it all worked out. I, I, <laughs> I use that story for a lot of my students at UNK are music education majors. And I, I use that story. I go, if, if you have a sophomore in high school who comes up to you and has, you know, 10 or 12 drumline cadences that they wrote, and that's all they know about composition, but they wrote music, please give them the time of day, sit down, you know, look at the stuff, at least give them some feedback. Yeah. Because that that's that's all I knew was I knew how to write percussion music. So I was writing like these weird, really weird drum cadences that would, yep. ne would never actually work. Um, and I tried to, you know, just get feedback. And it was just, oh, you don't want to do Why would you want to do that? You should no, don't don't just go play. Go play percussion. Don't right. don't write. And and that was kind of that was kind of frustrating. But Yeah. Well, it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> All right. Before uh, we go, can you tell people where they can uh, find more of your music, where they can find you online, those kinds of things? Yeah. My my website is uh, music.com. It's D-O-N-O-F-R-I-O-music. Um, I also have a SoundCloud. The website will connect you to the SoundCloud, but if you just want to go, it's soundcloud.com slash Anthony D'Onofrio. Um, I'm on Facebook. You can find me there. I, I'm on Instagram, but very new to Instagram. So I have like six posts. <laughs> and I, I have a Twitter account. But I do. I have a Twitter account. I think I, I think I think my reply to you was my annual tweet. <laughs> <laughs> because well, people can go look for that. <laughs> yeah, people can go look for that. So I, I, yeah, I, I'm on Twitter, but it's mostly just to Remind myself why Twitter's evil. But 
<laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Cool, man. Thanks for doing this. Hey, great talking to you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.